710 ESPN presents The Experience with Laverne Cusack, where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of The Experience, Laverne Cusack. have been looted in a sixth night of unrest on the streets anything States. but quiet tonight with more peaceful protests but is it really not enough when the rubber bullets fly when the world is enraged from watching a black man die gasping for breath and the man says i can't breathe with his esophageal tube collapsed under a man's knee is it not enough to wake in the wake of hate perpetuated by a system dating back to negro slaves Beat that black man, make him pick cotton. Shoot that black man, he looks like he's up to something. Is the American fury not enough for you? Crowds plowed through by vans driven by the men wearing blue. Who do you call when the cops are the killers? David Bianchi is a globally recognized spoken word poet. He competed in national slam competitions, has been televised nationwide on the hit series Versus and Flow, season three and five on TV One. He has written spoken word for films, including Sundance selected feature film Philly Brown, starring Golden Globe winner Gina Rodriguez, Lou Diamond Phillips and Edward James Olmos. Most recently, he was featured on KTLA primetime news in the award winning series Breaking Bias for his poetic activism. He also produced You Can't Hear Me alongside Emmy-nominated and Grammy Award-winning actor, poet, Malcolm Jamal Warner. Bianchi has produced a multitude of spoken word films through his company, Exertion Films. The spoken word poetry short film about injustice and the current civil rights movement in America, the struggles about police brutality and proving that Black Lives Matter, David says, use your freedom of speech and support the movement. I Can't Breathe is a powerful spoken word film about the state of America in the shadow of the death of George Floyd. Check out David on YouTube under David Bianchi, Instagram, and his website, davidbianchi.actor. The experience never stops. never stops on your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laverne Cusack. David, tell me how you got into the written word, poetry, filmmaking, and being the extraordinary man you are today. <laughs> well, that's, that's very generous. Extraordinary, as an extraordinary, <laughs> as in not the normal uh, grain of wood. I'll take that. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for, first off, thank you for, for inviting me on your great show and uh, taking the opportunity to, to, to share this information with, with the audience and with the people out there. So um, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, shout out to Laferne Cusack, killing it right now. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the answer is uh, I, I've always liked the way that words sounded from a rhythmic perspective, as long as I can remember. I remember when I first learned how to write, I just like, like cat, hat, this, that. Um, you know, baseball bat and any, anything that had like a, a metronome to it. I would just, I used to always rhyme when I was a kid. I wrote my first poems when I was, as soon as I, as soon as I could write. Flash forward into my teens, I grew up during the heyday of, of what was the commercialization of rap music, you know, sort of, you know, fat boys, 
you know, Run DMC, Sugar Hill Gang, and then eventually becoming what was the most iconic period in hip hop music, which was, you know, the East Coast, West Coast territory battles and, mm-hmm. you know, Tupac Shakur and, and, and Biggie Smalls and, and then the rise of NWA and all that. So I was on the East Coast at the time in upstate New York. And so in that space in Rochester, we would break dance and then we would also do a lot of battle rapping and freestyle MCing and that sort of thing. So I was a, I was a, a battle MC you know, sort of, you know, rolling CeeLo dice and, and break dancing and, and doing that kind of thing. Flash forward into my early 20s, I discovered the the art form of, of poetry and what we now call spoken word if you're usually a person of color or slam poetry if you're in a competition setting. But basically is what I, I like to call it performance poetry. I don't like to call it spoken word because to me, every word is spoken. So what makes you different? So when I think of it, I like to call it performance poetry because I think it blurs the lines between the written word and the physical manifestation of what is created through the delivery of the poem, mm-hmm. right? And that I believe that you could put any good poet on mute and really feel what they're going through. So I, I discovered that when I was when I was young and then uh, I started competing uh, in my early 20s. And since then, um, the art of spoken word poetry has always been a part of me in, in every step that I take. Days to be arrested for murdering a man in plain sight and a nine day riot to arrest the other three. Right. Did it maybe occur to you that our hearts are broken? that we're tired of being hurt in our culture not moving forward. Be it Selma, Malcolm X, the death of Dr. King, Freedom Riders, Bloody Sunday, I can hear the choir sing, Rosa Parks, the LA riots, the beating of Rodney King, Eric Gardner, Philando, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, can you feel the sting? You'll arrest hundreds of young minds and voices of the generation to come, but all you had to do was give us justice for what? Now you've created a resentment that will stretch a generation. That will yeah, and your piece is so powerful. Talk about what you went through to create that. I tend to write at my highest highs and my lowest lows. Um, that's what I tend to write my best work. Um, and I think that good poetry evokes the human condition. Um, and that's what makes it um, relevant to people's hearts because it's, it's heart music. That's what poetry is. Mm-hmm. You know, even if we go back to some of the greatest civilizations on this planet, we often don't remember their politics, but we remember their poetry. We often don't remember their, many of their ideologies, but we remember their architecture and their mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the things that tend to transcend generations and, and, and the eons. And so because of that, it's communication of the heart. Um, I was in a position post the uh, lynching of, of George Floyd, uh, the public uh, murdering of George Floyd, dealing with the protests and marching in the streets and feeling this, this obsessive fury and anger. In fact, I had actually written a piece that was, in, that was enraged with fury that was actually in support of the looters and the burners and the protesters and the demolition of the, of the, of the protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and through a series of events, God made it so that that piece didn't get released. Um, I ended up writing this piece just from a place of absolute exhaustion, a place of trying to rationalize what had happened over the course of about 11 days in America. I still can't rationalize it. Like even yesterday, I woke up crying and I just couldn't get George out of my head. And I, I, I have no words like, and I, and I think sometimes it's, it comes, it comes and then it goes and it's just like, uh, like an angry mob. If all men are created equal, 
what gives you the right to play God? Where is the leadership? Where is the fight? Four days to be arrested for murdering a man in plain sight and a nine-day riot to arrest the other three. Right? Did it maybe occur to you that our hearts are broken, that we're tired of being hurt in our culture not moving forward? Be it Selma, Malcolm X, the death of Dr. King, Freedom Riders' Bloody Sunday, I can hear the choir sing, Rosa Parks, the L.A. riots, the beating of Rodney King, Eric Gardner, Philando, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, can you feel the sting? You'll arrest hundreds of young minds and voices of the generation to come, but all you had to do was give us justice for one. Now you've created a resentment that will stretch a generation that will instill fear in the police administration in the eyes of the young people who know what is right. Trusting in the biblical law of thou shalt not kill. Right. Aren't you just tired of the pain? The anguish and the struggle? Aren't you tired of the fear, disdain? and anger for one another? Aren't you tired of the intimidation, the injury, and the judgment? Do I look infected to you because I'm not white? Do you see me as evil without blue eyes in my sight? Yeah, it, it, it does come and go. Um, and I, I, I looked at, to complete your question, I, I looked at the timeline of events. I looked at the death of George Floyd. I looked at how the protests began. I looked at the things that happened within the protests, specific brutality and, and violent moments towards peaceful protesters that were instigated by um, the overseers, the police officers, um, and by the National Guard. And I looked at those events and I said, okay, how can I quantify the historical pain and struggle of the black experience in America intermix it with the contemporary struggle of what it means to be a black person in America while also conveying the elements of absolute exhaustion because of the social pain and, as you mentioned, the resurfacing of these feelings. Um, uh, believe it or not, I, I wrote the entire poem in, in, in under 30 minutes. Um, I, just, I just sat down and it, and it just started coming to me. Um, and I ended up a little bit confused because I started writing it in pieces. Typically I'll write all the way through. I'll just follow the metronome and I'll perform it as I write it. In this case, I wrote a stanza and I was like, oh, that doesn't work. And then I wrote another stanza, oh, that doesn't work. And it literally became like a shuffleboard of putting these pieces together and creating a through line to the story. And um, I wouldn't be on this podcast with you if it wasn't affecting people in a real way. So yeah. uh, apparently it's working. Yeah. And we can go to your YouTube page and it's right there. Um, and your YouTube page is... Yeah, it's youtube.com uh, backslash David Bianchi. That's B-I-A-N-C-H-I, David Bianchi. And the piece is called I Can't Breathe. And initially, the piece is called Collapsed Neck. And then after I wrote it, excuse me, it was originally called How Much is Enough? Mm. And then I called it Collapsed Neck. And then once we shot it and I saw what it became, I thought that it was strong enough to be able to hold the weight of the title, I Can't Breathe. Um, I, I feel that we have to be very cautious with the language that we use and how we use it. Um, I don't believe in sticks and stones or break your bones, but words will never hurt you. I'm a product of how words hurt. 
Yeah. Anybody in America who is of color is a product of how words hurt. Uh, our feelings, our resentments, our anxiety are often a result of words that hurt us. And so language is very important to me as a writer. And so in order to hold the weight of the title, I can't breathe, it had to be good. And it had to convey the pain of America, or the pain of the black experience. The looting and the destruction is a side effect of our screen. The world protested, marched and they cried, stop the racism, please make police brutality die. And this isn't just for black folks. This is for all of humanity. So we can live in a country where we can feel protected and free. Is it not enough to see a black man shot in the back? Running from a man in a badge with his Glock pistol cocked back. Ticking time bomb has exploded and we can't afford to wait and see if justice will be served or if there'll be another black man hanging from a tree. Volcanoes must erupt to create new land. And sometimes violence is the answer to a heavy opposing hand. And the fire and brimstone evoke justice in a conversation. And so now I pray quietly for an answer to the situation. I have hope that humans will pass this social test. Because I'm not sure that the world can handle Another collapsed neck. I, I I totally felt it. It going through this, like reading all of everyone's experiences, how people are sharing and sharing and caring. Um, I didn't realize as you know a, a black woman what I do on a daily basis that is actually pretty messed up that someone actually is confronted with some things on a daily basis. Sure. But that's sure. just how we're programmed or mm -hmm. how I was programmed. And, you know, even, you know, getting into my car, putting on my badge just in case I get stopped, you sure. know, sure. Make, making sure that my, you know, they see, you know, a brand, the ESPN brand or, you know, another brand, you know? Sure. Well, I th and I think, and I, and I think what you're getting at and, and the subtext behind what I'm hearing you saying is that you need to walk through society with some sort of moniker that says I belong here because we are so predispositioned to being pulled aside and being asked the question, do you belong here? Are you supposed to be here? Where are you going, boy? Where are you going, girl? Right. And you as a, as a, as a woman of color, you have a couple strikes against you by birthright. Uh, you are of, of uh, ethnically ambiguous. Okay, so there's that. And you're a woman. So you have two minority strikes against you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and not to say that you're not a queen. It's just the nature of our social setup. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of separatism is one of the things that our, our Caucasian counterparts, I really believe that they don't understand because they've never had to feel separate from another. They've never had to feel as if they were removed from the sandbox and that they were allowed to play if and only if the rules applied to them at that particular moment in time. Whereas people of color, um, we walk with a perpetual um, heightened sense of awareness of what we do, how we do, where we go, and what is being said about us. How are people communicating with us through their eyes and not through their mouths? 
What is the histrionic language that is being exuded at me through your physical form? What are you saying to me with your body that you're not brave enough to say with your mouth? Those are the things that we deal with. And you talked about things resurfacing and, and I often talk about resentments and the resentment comes from the Latin word to refeel, to resentir. And so when a resentment happens, it is a refeeling. It's a re-evocation of something that happened to you once upon a time, almost a PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, a form of that. And so when you experience racism, racism as a child, especially in your formative years, which I experienced a lot of, those are things that are buried inside of you. Mm -hmm. And at any moment in time, I can walk into a supermarket and I can hear a sonic signal or a visual cue, or I can hear something overheard in a sentence that will trigger that racism, that will trigger that experience. As a result, I'm suddenly taken out of my present because I'm suddenly thinking about the past and the pain of the past in the present. And it removes me from being a human being just for a moment in time and turns me into almost a Pavlovian dog mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where I'm acting on response as opposed to behaving in the world in the present time and space. Mm -hmm. And these resentments that resurface, um, I believe were a massive catalyst for this civil rights movement. You included with you crying this morning. I mean, what a powerful story because that is the resentment that resurfaces when we are faced with the, um, the horrible murder of a black person on camera who just fundamentally did not deserve to be lynched in the public space and millions of people mobilized through their resentments because it all surfaced at once. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you were saying is, uh, you know, as, as I sit on my couch and I'm taking in all this information and I thought about, well, how am I being, how am, how do I confront someone when they're being racist? Like, I'll say in a corporate setting. And I was mm. thinking about that. And I was like, I code switch. Instead of going into rage, I I do the code switch. Right. You posture. You, yeah. posture, pivot, you pivot. And <laughs> and so for anybody out there who is anybody out there who doesn't understand the nature of code switching, I mean, it's basically being chameleonic, right? Mm -hmm. You got to be chameleonic in your environments. You know, in the corporate setting, it's it's very difficult because, you know, you have to toe the line of what's politically correct and what's offensive and what's not offensive because you don't want to run the risk of losing your job and you don't want to end up in HR. Right. right? Um, you know, I even myself, when I'm speaking to you, I could speak to you now candidly. But if I'm on a set, you know, when I'm on a set of a television show, I have to be very cautious about what I say, how I say and where I say it and who's listening. Um, that posturing, I think, is very important because. I do it all the time. I do it all the time because for, for me, it's an element of social survival. Mm -hmm. So if you put me in Westchester or Inglewood, or if you put me in Brooklyn, not the gentrified part of Brooklyn, but if you put me in like the, 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 the black side of Brooklyn, you know what I mean? Like, like literally like the New York of me is just going, it's just going to come right out. You know what I mean? Like it's just going to come right out because you know, it's, it's almost like I got to be able to connect with my brothers in a way that those brothers understand. But in a corporate setting, you'll find that I will, I'll raise my, I'll raise my diction. I will become, um, I'll be, I'll become much more articulate and I will, and I will use my, <laughs> my higher learning to my advantage so that I can be seen or perceived as a bright man of color so that my Caucasian counterparts won't look down on me or presume that I'm not aware. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, 
And this is part of the, I think one of the big problems with, with our African American and black culture is that we glorify the idea of ghettoism. Mm-hmm. And that even in Hollywood, casting directors and producers will say, well, Dave is not black enough. He's just, he just doesn't have that black thing. What? Well, because I don't talk hood. Is that what it is? Because I don't talk hood. So because I don't talk hood, I'm not black enough. Okay. I, I got you. I got you. But I could talk hood if you want me to talk hood. But why would I dumb myself down? Mm-hmm. But, you know, media, hip hop music perpetuates the idea of black culture. And so I can often be accused of being an Uncle Tom because I choose to carry myself well and speak articulately in a way that maybe you don't understand because your vocabulary is limited. But we do have to be chameleonic in the professional settings, but also in the street settings, mm-hmm. because the, the internal racism goes, the pendulum swings both ways. I had a guy reach out to me yesterday, literally on, on he, he, he like called me up on the message. He's like, yo, man, I see you switching, man. What's up with you, man? I'm like, what, what do you mean? I'm, I'm busy right now. What's going on? Well, yo, man, you know, you, you used to party and everything. Now you all like activists and everything. And I said, you know what, bro? I said, you know what, bro? I'm sorry, bro. I don't have time to resurface things from my past. Okay. I, I don't have time to, 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 to explain myself to you. So I'm going to end the conversation right now. I wish you nothing but the best. Have a great day. And I hung up and I blocked him. Yeah. Really that quick. Yeah, because if you don't understand my if you don't understand, you know, minority progress, I don't understand you. Yes. (laughs) Which brings me to the entertainment world. So you're talking about, you know, you're a great, a wonderful actor. You've been in (laughs) several films, several shows, um, most recently. um, Well, what I watched you because it's recent for me, Queen of the South. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute, I know him. Or maybe it's because I've been looking at him on Queen of the South. When I was auditioning for commercials and and stuff, a casting director told me that I didn't pass the paper. I barely passed the paper bag test. Mm. Explain explain that. What What does that mean? What does that mean, the paper bag test? The paper bag test where back in the day, if you were darker than a, a paper bag, a brown paper bag, you couldn't do certain things or you couldn't be in the house or, you know, you have to, you had to be lighter than the paper bag. Mm. So Mm. to get certain privileges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in casting, he said for commercials, they want to automatically know that someone is black. Mm. So, I'm probably not getting cast in a lot of commercials because it's not an automatic visual thing of, mm-hmm. oh, she's black. You yes. know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, you're, I understand that now. And, and unfortunately, it, it's a demon that is the result of social programming. When I first moved to Los Angeles and I came here with a BFA in theater, you know, I was trained by Marshall Mason, who has four Tony Awards on Broadway. I went to conservatory at Arizona State University and I graduated summa cum laude. Um, and so I came to L.A. with dreams of grandeur that L.A. was waiting for me. But I will tell you this. I got here almost 15 years ago. And for the first 10 years of my career in Hollywood, it was not cool to be ethnically ambiguous mm-hmm. because of exactly what you're talking about, that because from a branding perspective and you being at ESPN, you understand brand. When you see ESPN, what do you think? Sports. Mm-hmm. Bam. When you, okay. So now in, in, in racial branding, when I see a, 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 a Caucasian man with blue eyes and a necktie, lawyer, doctor, 
I see an African-American dark-skinned man in this round neck shirt, I think athlete, you know, and I think that that programming has unfortunately perpetuated um, marketing culture, which makes it invariably part of American culture, that we have been programmed to accept what archetypes will fit into which categories. And so, you know, if we talk about the the, the, pro- the process of how commercials are made, so the, the ad agency comes up with the creative, the, the, the company has a product, the ad agency comes up with the treatment, the treatment is that made the commercial, and then they place what people they want to put in there that are going to fit that to sell the brand. And they have to use marketing trends that dictate to them what audiences are going to respond to. And if they look at someone like yourself who is ethically ambiguous or someone like myself who's ethically ambiguous and they're trying to sell, you know, a specific product that often is catered mostly to African-American people, they won't hire me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unfortunately uh, an algorithmic science in the marketing space. Mm-hmm. Now, that goes back all the way beyond commercials. This goes all the way back. We take it back to 1900, mm-hmm. you know, when they stole Thomas Edison's technology and came out west and wanted to make independent films, right? Basically, those were Caucasian people that were trained through the minstrel show. And I, we mentioned this yesterday. And the minstrel show, for people that don't know, is back in the days when white player, when black players were not allowed to share the stage with white players because of segregation. As a result of that, white players would paint themselves in blackface and they created what actually was the largest theater movement in American history. Mm-hmm. So the largest theater movement in American history was white people painting themselves in blackface. That then turned into film because if you look at silent films, then you have white people painted in blackface and silent films. Even in talkies, you have white people painted in blackface, which is why blackface today is so inherently offensive. Aunt Jemima is also a product of blackface. So now... Flash forward with that, generation after generation after generation, when I'm told that Greta Garbo is what a star is supposed to look like, when I'm told that Elizabeth Taylor is what a star is supposed to look like, when I'm told that, you know, James Dean is what a star is supposed to look like, and that is grandfathered over the course of generations, as a child, when I grew up and I watched Steven Spielberg films and I see white stars, I'm programmed to believe what stars are supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, myself, yourself, and everybody else is programmed to believe that Eurocentric Caucasian people are what movie stars look like. Mm-hmm. And so we have to slowly bend and break the paradigm. And I think that that's starting to happen right now. Yeah. And Queen of the South is a great example of that. I am forever, forever <laughs> indebted to those producers. And I'm going to tell you why. I was raised in Mexico City five years and I was, and speaking Spanish was essentially one of my native tongues. And so I still speak it natively without an accent. I was invited to come onto that show because of my performance tape. My audition was so strong that they cast me as a Mexican. Now, you may not know that 10% of the Mexican population is Afro-Mexican, <laughs> but many people don't know that yeah. because it's not the perception of what's created in television and media of the Mexican person. Mm-hmm. The Mexican person in, in television and media is olive skin and Eurocentric. And that tends to radiate throughout all Latino countries across the world if you look at the soap operas and the TV. But they were willing to be brave enough to say, no, this guy can be Mexican mm-hmm. because he speaks it, he handles the dialect well, habla español, y él sabe la manera de los mexicanos. And so because of that, they were brave enough to say, no, we're going we're gonna to break this mold. We are going to be brave enough and we're not going to go with what, the, with what audiences are used to seeing when right. it comes to Mexicans. We are going to make David Bianchi and he's going to play and he's going to play a Mexican. And that's what he's going to do. And he's going to play Manny and he's going to do a great job of it. And I'm forever indebted to them. Yeah. But, for, for, for giving me that opportunity. But even with the other characters in Queen of the South, 
they did they did the same thing like you know one guy looked like my brother you know and another guy looked like my uncle and it it was beautiful to see i mean it's not only beautiful to see you know this beautiful woman as queen as head of her own show and holding it like it made my head tingle you know right 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 yeah <laughs> And, you know, and God bless Alicia Braga. She's she's a wonderful, wonderful Brazilian actress and wonderful Brazilian spirit. I, I really have so much admiration for her. You know, the pressure of carrying your own show is is, is supreme. Yes. Uh, let alone being a woman and whatnot. And um, you're absolutely right. They go out of their way to break the conventions of stereotypical racial molds in Hollywood. And it's those types of powerful, brave producers that are making it possible to flatten the curve for a, a lack of a COVID, better COVID metaphor, right. but flatten the curve on racial inequality as it relates to film and television. Because the more and more that the millennials and the newer generation see people like me on camera, people like you on camera, they will grow up accepting that movie stars don't need to be blue eyed and blonde haired, right? Whereas leading up to my generation and generations before that, that was not the case. And I owe it to my ancestors to work my ass off and to have these conversations, you know, because, you know, I look at people like Denzel and Morgan Freeman and, and, you know, Mario Van Peebles and Melvin Van Peebles and, and, you know, and Lou Gossett Jr. And, and however many greats that came before me, if they did it, I don't have an excuse because my life is a lot easier than theirs was. And I feel a, a, a fundamental uh, dignity to the eons of men and women that died and suffered to give me the opportunity to have, share, just to have this conversation with you right now, yeah. let alone be able to express my political views in poetic form and for, you know, for, for, you know, markets to see and KTLA to broadcast and everything else. Right? Yes, exactly. And that, that was another thing that came to me when George Floyd was lynched is, my dad and all the things that he went through as a black man being six foot four, <laughs> you know, walking down the street, even though he's, you know, he's postmaster of this town, but people are still grabbing their purses and running across the street. Yeah. It, it was a feeling of, well, I want to protect him from that. You know, he, oh. he, he died, but it was like, I wish he didn't have to feel that. Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I wish that that didn't happen to him either. And I wish that you didn't have to deal with the 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 concussion of that emotional struggle that you have uh, a, a, a living resentment towards something that you fundamentally can't control. It's a pain that lives in you. And I have some mutual pains that live in me. Um, I remember vividly when I was in second grade. That was the first time that I was called a nigger. And I don't use that word trivially, but I say it out loud because it has weight and it hurts. So anybody that heard it, yeah, that's what you heard. And my, my elementary school principal uh, took my referral and he, and he waved it at me. I, I was being a class con. I got called to the principal's office in second grade. He said, this here, I'm going to put this here in my box. I don't want you to come back here no more because I don't want my box getting full. The fact that the elementary school principal had a box, number one. Number two, he had multiple people of color in that school. So he said that to multiple people of color, probably to every person of color. 
whether you're a Mexican, African-American, Pacific Islander, Asian or other. Those are the things that we grew up with. And those are pains that we grew up with. And it is hard to wrap your head around that if you don't have that experience. It's like we look at the Me Too movement in Hollywood right now with women that have been verbally or physically harassed. It's not cool to pat a woman on the ass just because you feel like that's that's something that you can do. You don't have ownership of another person's space, mm-hmm. right? But it's hard for a man to understand how it feels to be objectified and be patted on the ass unless they've had that experience. And so as human beings, we have to open our ears and our hearts and allow that communication to be able to try to have a me too moment as in, I don't know what that feels like, that particular thing to be objectified or to be called a but I do know what it feels like to be bullied. So try to transcend the feelings. And as we always say, put yourself in somebody else's shoes because those things are real and um, everybody's fighting a war that we know nothing about. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I think is happening now. There's for the people that are unable to understand, they lack empathy. They're lacking something and they have a fear that something's being taken away from them, (laughs) you know, and how can we change that if you don't have the willingness in your heart to have empathy, to have a willingness to change? And are we to change it? Or are you need to, you know, look into yourself and change? Sure. I, I think that, and, and look, anger, anger is a byproduct of fear, right? Fear manifesting itself inside of your spirit oftentimes translates into anger, outworldly anger towards a people, place, or thing. Mm-hmm. I am afraid that I am not going to get something that I want. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid you're going to take something that I have <laughs> or I'm afraid I'm going to lose something that I have. Exactly. And I think that those components of fear, which is fundamentally, and we say all the time, the acronym false evidence appearing real, that fear is what closes the door on communication. And so when we say they lack empathy and they transmute that in to a blockade of communication or anger or frustration and say all lives matter, not just black lives matter. That to me is a contact lens of their fear of losing control mm-hmm. because of many um, white privilege has given Caucasian counterparts free reign to the world. The problem is they didn't realize they had it. Because it's just it's just part of being biologically Caucasian, right? You don't realize you got it. Right? It's almost like if I'm born rich, I don't never know I'm broke until I'm going broke. But suddenly when I see the money starting to dwindle away and my accountant is like, uh, you can't buy that handbag. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Now you get mad. Now you get frustrated because you're telling me I, I, I can't have what has always been my birthright. I can't have that bag. I can't have what I want when I want it. And so... I think that a lot of that is being transmuted as anger and lack of understanding and lack of empathy because they are concerned that they are losing a piece of their pie. Mm -hmm. That suddenly they're coming to grips with the fact that this privilege that they've had, that they were not conscious of, that where they were born into, is slowly, one brick at a time, being taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And that right there, and I'll be honest, if I was Caucasian, I'd probably 
I'm human. My ego will probably get a little pissed off too. I'm like, well, wait a second. You know, wait, you, you're taking, you're taking away my glory. You know, um, so I, I try to play both sides of the fence, but the truth is, is that if you, like you said so clearly, if you don't have empathy, which is a pathos, a, an emotional understanding or concern for what another thing, person, place is going through, if you don't have that, it's, it's very easy just to tap out and say, it's not my problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mentioned this to you yesterday, we were on the phone. I was at the Santa Monica protest, at the Santa Monica Pier, at the front line, and we were standing there, peaceful protest. There was about 50 yards between us and the front line of the police officers. The curfew at the time was 6 p.m. In the middle of the protest, they announced it was going to be 4 p.m. And then they started counting down minute by minute. How do you move a thousand people that quickly right. when you change the curfew from 6 p.m. to 4 p.m. in real time? Right. And then announce it. They, they minute counted down. They started firing tear gas, flashbangs, rubber bullets at Santa Monica Pier in the middle of the afternoon. Mind you, if you walk down that set of stairs, literally right down that set of stairs, down in that patch of grass, there were white people hanging out, doing yoga, exercising, meditating, drawing, sitting on the sand. Man, there's, there's like, there's three LAPD choppers above. There's news choppers above. I mean, it feels like the apocalypse, but that I bring that up because it made me think of that time where, where our Caucasian counterparts are like, it ain't my problem. Well, I'm just going to hang out here and do my yoga while there's helicopters beating above me, driving me crazy. Cause how you're not, how are you meditating with helicopters beating over your head? Right. But you are so concerned with trying to do you that you're closing your heart to what's happening over there because those marches aren't my problem. What black people, what minorities are going through are not my problem. I'm going to sit on this uh, artificial patch of grass and I'm going to act like it's not happening. There was that photo in the L.A. Times. Did you see that photo with uh, the marchers? going down the street and then a group of uh, Caucasian people sitting, eating brunch. And one woman was like, this is two different worlds, one who's fighting to have brunch and one fighting for black lives. Mm. And it, it was, it, it was trending yesterday on Twitter, but you look at that and you're like, wow, <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm. What a yeah. what a powerful picture, and it's yeah, yeah. It's now I, I I don't want this to be all doom and gloom because there is a lot of progress that is being made right now. Um, you know the the circulation of of the poem that I released, and I mean that's an element of prosper. But at the judicial level, at the municipal level, even at the highest levels of government, even though you know Donald Trump may just say tongue in cheek, and I'm going to sign this executive order, and then he's just going to forget about it and pass it on to his cronies. There is progress being made. You look at police body cams. Police body cams are a result of social uprising, right? We have those in place. Now, interesting that the psychology of the, what's the word I'm looking for? That the psychology of the dark-minded, arrogant police officer hasn't changed whether they have a body cam on or not. The fear of the black man still exists, right, with or without the body cam. But there is progress that is being made. Yes. And this movement 
is as powerful as it is as a result of that progress because I remember marching strongly with white brothers and sisters, with with Native Americans, with Asians, with all race, colors, and creeds that came out and effing mobilized. Right. Mobilized. I was just recently shooting a movie out in the deserts of, of Nevada, out by Death Valley. And as I was driving through just from Sedona, because I needed a sabbatical, I needed to hike and just get out of the concrete. And I remember driving through a small gas station, no nothing town and nowhere. And I saw a lonely, not lonely, she didn't, she didn't look lonely. She actually looked very vibrant. I should say a lone Caucasian woman who was easily over 60, standing on a street corner by herself, <laughs> waving a Black Lives Matter sign wow. in the middle of like beef jerky, you know, podunk Nevada town. And that warmed my heart. And I wish I had made a U-turn to thank her. I did it. And I resent that I did it. I should have pulled over and just said, thank you. Because here's a woman in the middle of her Caucasian community. She's probably getting spit on, hollered at, because she's going against the grain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that to me is hope. Yes. You know, that to me is evidence that it's not just, the bureaucracy that's moving, society is moving. Mm-hmm. We as a people are understanding that humanity must be respected. That it's not just about civil rights, it's about just rights. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just rights, period. <laughs> you know? um, and we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our white brothers and sisters. Because we go all the way up. Let's look at the Underground Railroad. That wasn't possible without our Caucasian counterparts. Mm-hmm wasn't possible so i you know we have to also applaud all the powerful and motivating and inspirational white folks out there that are helping us lead the charge yeah absolutely absolutely Uh, one thing i wanted to mention if we could go back to queen of the south of course you know and the industry um how do we go about changing what you know, you we're talking about how Queen of the South is is how they're changing the way what Mexicans look like or what how we appear on camera. But it's still about the cartel. Right. And that stereotype of Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's a that's a very loaded question. But the truth is is um, you know, the media perpetually sensationalizes and glorifies Negative behavior. I mean, the protests are an example of that. If, if shit wasn't burning and breaking down and cars weren't being looted and cop cars being burned, this wouldn't have been national news, which wouldn't have made it international news, which wouldn't have made the global revolution a movement, right? Okay. So I think that television often operates in the same way. That there is a glorification of these, you know, black market lives that we're fascinated that people actually live this way. Right now, there are cartel guys that are carrying around barrels of crystal meth and they're running them across the border as we speak, probably. You know, um, we as audience members are, we're, we're fascinated by the Bonnie and Clydes. We're fascinated by the narcos and narco trafficking and that sort of world. Um, I think racially, we need to just keep doing what we're doing. You know, black producers writing letters to, you know, um, you know, AMPIS, which is the uh, American uh, uh, Association of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, who do the Oscars, um, ATIS Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences, which I'm a member of. Um, I joined that, that academy well, because of my body of work, but primarily so that my, my understanding of what I think is good television 
and who I think should be on camera, my vote will count. So I can vote towards who's going to earn that that Emmy Award. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to continue to fill categories of casting so that we can start to, again, flatten the curve and educate audiences that uh, you don't have to be Caucasian to be a star. All these things are happening. Now, mm-hmm. it also has to happen at the writer and at the producer and at the showrunner level. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Narcos, for example, is a, is a huge show. And Carla Hull, uh, who cast that project, said to me openly, um, I asked her, I was like, you know, what are you going to be doing to hire more Afro-Latinos? Because there are hundreds of millions of Afro-Latinos that are not represented in film and television. Mm -hmm. That as soon as you see a black person speaking Spanish as an American audience member, you go, huh? (laughs) That shit don't look right. (laughs) Because we've not been presented. It's like, it's it's almost like, think of Juneteenth. (laughs) The slaves in Juneteenth didn't know they were free because the information wasn't out there. Right? right? It took that long for the information to get there. So, okay. So there are hundreds of millions of Afro-Latinos, but audiences go, huh? Because the information isn't out there. <laughs> we haven't put the information out there that there are black people that natively speak Spanish that don't even fucking speak English. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we, we got to get that out there. And so Carlo Hull says, David, I don't cast Afro-Latinos because the people that write my shows, the showrunners, they don't write those characters. Wow. Because they're writing about their experience, their vision of the narco community centrifuge through their personal perception, which is Eurocentric Latino people. Mm-hmm. So until we get showrunners and, and, and co-producers and writing producers that are writing for the Afro-Latino experience, there will never be Afro-Latinos in front of a camera. One thing I remember, Matt Damon, who he I guess he had that competition show and he said something to the black woman on the set that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. And this guy wrote, well, if you had a a black editor, that would have never made it to screen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but right. it's so true because, like, I see things now that I'm like, hey, we might want to adjust that. You know, we, we might not want that to get to air, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I well, see yeah, that. I mean, you, you, you bring up a really good point. I mean, even if you look at, like, there was recently, uh, not too long ago, there was a scandal with Gucci bags and things like that. And, you know, a lot of these higher level brands that end up releasing product. Um, but anyway, you see, like, a lot of these times, you'll see the, these high-level brands that will be releasing stuff that it will get released. And then suddenly it's like, whoa, that is very unpolitically correct. You know, and there's a lot of examples of that. But the thing is, anything that is released, be it a, a, a television clip or whether it's a product, a, a Gucci bag, that goes through teams of quality control people. <laughs> Especially like, let's talk about branding, that ESPN logo right behind you. Mm-hmm. That was pontificated over for hours and hours and weeks and who knows how long until the entire committee said, yes, this is our brand. Mm. Okay, great. So look at Gucci bags. Whenever they released out that, that one bit that drove the black community crazy, that was pontificated on. And so you really have to ask yourself, like, is it because there are no people of color at those higher ups and those folks that decided on that are just oblivious to the fact that this is indeed offensive? Right. Or did they do it on purpose? Because because maybe because maybe they're doing it because they don't want black folks wearing their brands to begin with. Because let's not get it twisted. There is a lot of conversation out there about elitist brands that don't want black support. Mm-hmm. 
because rappers got unlimited money. But rappers going back to ghetto, ghetto philosophies, ghetto language, ghetto color, ignorant behavior. No, you know, I call it modern day minstrelsy. You know, there's a lot of black rappers that are modern day minstrels. And I'm perfectly happy to say that, you know, so maybe some of the stuff they're doing is on purpose. Who knows? I'm not in those boardrooms. (laughs) Neither am I. (laughs) Well, I do think that this time is so important that it's worldwide marching. It's reached such a level that it blows my mind. Like, oh, my goodness, they're marching in. You know, Australia? What? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I absolutely echo that. You know, I, we're talking about Copenhagen, Budapest, Berlin, Paris, London, Sydney. I mean, Korea for crying out loud. Just wow. Yes. So we have to look at why. What is the why behind that? And maybe the why is that for the first time, at least I can think of in modern history, at least in my life, the world saw a human being slow, lynched. And I say the word lynched, not executed. Execution for the audience out there. Execution indicates a person that has committed a crime that is so heinous that that person is deserving of an execution. Lynching indicates killing someone without warrant for anything that they have done leading up to that moment. We saw George Floyd lynched slowly, the life taken out of him as he pled for his mother, as he wept, I can't breathe, as this man shifted his knee on his esophageal throat, squeezing the life out of him slowly with no regard for his life. That slow death shocked the world in a way that the world hadn't been shocked before. Because every other time it's like, oh, well, he, he was going for his glove box. He might have thought he had a gun. Or he was running away and he was resisting arrest. Or he was doing this. There was always an or if. In this particular case, we just watched a police officer squeeze the life out of a human being. And if it weren't for hip-hop culture, if it weren't for, you know, disco music, if it weren't for jazz music, if it weren't for booms of African-Americans in sports, in every sport, you know, across the globe, if it weren't for us being so used to seeing the black face in media, the world wouldn't have been so shocked. So to a certain degree, we can say, well, we are still, you know, treated like slaves in certain categories of the business and the sports world. But if it weren't for that perpetuation of our image as human beings, the world wouldn't have seen George Floyd as a human being. So because the world is so used to seeing powerful black faces like, you know, Magic Johnson, like Michael Jordan, like Tiger Woods, like all these LeBron James as powerful human beings, they were able to identify that George Floyd as a human being, mm-hmm. right? They were able to identify that he was illegitimately lynched. And that is what drove people mad because everybody's got a knee, not everybody's got a gun. And everybody knows, even when you were in second grade or third grade, you know, when you had your friend under you and you know that that person can't breathe, you know what that feels inside of your body. You know what that does to you. You let them go, right? If you're squeeze, you ever try to squeeze a puppy and a puppy yelps, what does that do to your body? You yeah. let go. And so to see this man squeeze the life out of another human being with no regard for what he was experiencing, when a grown man is crying for his mother, the world couldn't take it. And the world and the world got enraged and it stood up. So it's 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 challenging to look at all these issues and say, well, what isn't working? 
but the things that are working have led to this moment. Mm -hmm. Because if it wasn't for 1964 and, you know, the, 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 the act that abolished segregation, uh, the Civil Rights Act, if it weren't for people of color dominating in sports and dominating in media and us slowly injecting into Hollywood and people like Michael B. Jordan being stars and people like John Boyega uh, and Denzel Washington. If it and weren't, David Bianchi. And, and David Bianchi. And if it, if it weren't for people like us that are allowing people around the world to realize that people of color are people too, mm. the death of George Floyd wouldn't have meant so much. Yeah. But I, I also feel that, that there's a level of strength that has not been in the world before this, there's a level of strength that's coming in that needs to be there in order for us to grow as human beings and not ignore anymore, not to be silent anymore. But- Agreed. Agreed. I think that, um, look, we, we as a people are far less barbaric than we used to be, right? We're not, it's no longer the dark ages, you know, 10 years from now, tobacco will probably be obsolete, you know, um, you know, renewable energies will be the source of everything. Um, slowly but surely we are evolving as a people and we're evolving as a race. Um, there are a lot of things that are broken right now. There are a lot of things that aren't working and this civil rights movement is evidence and example of that rage. Um, but this civil rights movement is what it is as a result of the things that have slowly begun to work. Yeah. Right. If we think about, the historical timeline in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act that gave us the ability to segregate in all states. That was 36, 56 years ago. That's not older than most parents today. So that gives you a reference of the time capsule last 450 years, there's only been 50 of which it's been okay to not segregate against people of color. Mm -hmm. So given that we're only 56 years in, I think we're doing pretty well um, because this movement is is evidence of how well we are doing, but there's so much left to do. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, David, for sharing your heart, your soul, and in your filmmaking and in this great world of not spoken word <laughs> what you it's, I, I call it i call it spinema spinning cinema <laughs> through spoken word i love it i love it spinema you are truly powerful and i love that you took the time to share your experience and share what you're doing to make a change in our world well i'm i'm grateful for you laferne and i am grateful for powerful women like yourself that champion this information that are willing to be brave enough. And thank you ESPN for the platform. You know, thank you for giving us an opportunity to talk about progress. And I hope that the next time that we have this conversation, you know, there'll be, we'll, we'll be in a better place than we are today. Yes. And David, before you go, I know you've been on Westworld, you've been on Agents of Shields, MacGyver. Um, what's coming up for you next? Or- sure, of course. Of course. Um, thanks for asking. Yeah. So you'll catch me on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. coming up uh, around July. I don't know the exact air dates yet, but uh, you'll catch me on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm also wrapping up production on a movie uh, called Catalyst that I am uh, one of the leads, also producer and writer on um, with um, Melanie Liburd and uh, Michael Rourke um, and Noel Guglielmi, a pretty powerful cast. And uh, this year, I'll also be releasing my first leadership book. Um, okay. So that will be coming out towards the end of 2020. 
And, um, you know, keep your eyes open. There's, there's a lot happening. Find me on Instagram at David Bianchi official, or just Google me. I'm pretty easy to find. (laughs) And and I'm I'm grateful for you guys. And definitely check out the, the, uh, the spoken word films on the YouTube channel, uh, at David Bianchi. All right. Again, filmmaker, spinologist, did you say? Uh, <laughs> no, I can't I say spoken I, word. I, I don't know. Yeah, you, you just say poet. You just say poet. <laughs> Thank you again so much, David Bianchi. You're truly extraordinary. Oh, thank you. And so are you. All right. I, I don't think, I don't know if I want to use extraordinary because like you were saying, extraordinary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? You know, I, 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 I guess I presume it probably does. I mean, you know, there are the ordinary and then there are the, uh, there are the extraordinary. Um, I am very, people that know me know I'm very extra. Um, <laughs> I tend to be very extra, you know. As, with your fur as, coat? Yeah, with my, you know, I, I, I like, and you know what? I do love that fur coat. I actually, that was, the, that was the only time I've actually worn it on a carpet was that night. I worn it. Oh my gosh, that was so fun. I, I like vision. I think visionary is a little is a little better, but you know that's that's kind of loaded. It's a loaded. It's a loaded title. Like, you can't give these titles to yourself. You know what I'm saying? I'm not Kanye. I'm not trying to like give these titles to myself. Like, you know? I'm going to say visionary. Uh, Bam. All right. I'll take. Bam. I'll take it. <laughs> all right. Thank Maybe. you so much. Dave. It's almost like it's almost like humility. You can't you can't give you can't tell people you're humble. Like <laughs> people say that about you. you know? <laughs> Why not? Maybe this is a new world now to know your greatness and say it. Yeah. Well, I, greatness is one thing. I, I definitely know that um, greatness is something that I work towards and I aspire to. And I think that greatness is a working uh, adjective uh, to walk in a, a perpetual state of greatness takes an incredible amount of personal fortitude and self-awareness. Absolutely. And um, it's not something that comes easily. Yes. You know, um, there's a, there's a, a great talk that I do called the good is the enemy of the great. And as soon as you settle to be good, you have removed all notions of being great. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you choose to be great, you can no longer be good because you can't do what everybody else does. Mm-hmm. So when everybody else is resting on Saturday and Sunday, you cannot rest because the great don't rest. Right. <laughs> Keep on moving. Yeah. And I also want to thank Heidi again for connecting yeah. us. She's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Heidi for, for putting this conversation together and can I reconnect? Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for your work and we'll talk soon. Thank you. David Bianchi, the actor, poet, filmmaker, artist, motivator. Check out more about David Bianchi at davidbianchi.actor. I'm LaFern Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. Listening to the experience with Laferne Cusack, getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's the experience with Laferne Cusack on 710 ESPN.